All right, book of Philippians. Turn there, please. Let me remind you a couple things we talked about this morning, just very briefly. The theme of the book of Philippians is joy. It's Christians ought to be joyful people. Doesn't mean you don't have problems. Doesn't mean you don't have challenges. Doesn't mean there are not situations where we are not excited about what has happened. But none of that should steal your joy. If you lose your joy, that means that there's something not exactly right about the way you're looking at things. I'm not talking about happiness, and I'm not talking about, you know, there comes, there comes a time when, when we sorrow. But even when we lose someone we love, the Bible says, we sorrow not as others which have no hope. Because we know where they are. And there's cause for rejoicing in that, even in the midst of our sorrow. So even in the worst of circumstances, for an individual who knows the Lord, the joy can still be there. And that's what what Paul is talking about here. Uh, chapter 1, again, deals with, with uh, having joy in spite of problems. He talks about his situation being in bonds in Christ and how the Lord has used those. It's, look at verse number 12 of chapter 1. He said, I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And uh, and he goes on, verse 18, What then, notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to talk about rejoicing even in difficult circumstances. Chapter 2, we're going to come back to that again in a minute. He deals with having joy in spite of the fact you have to deal with people. Chapter 3 has to do with possessions. He said, I count all things but dung, that I might win Christ. And, uh, and, and, and he is the one that I'm seeking to please. And, uh, so even though possessions, I may have a lot, I may have not much, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to rejoice in whatever state I am. And then in chapter four, it deals with priority. Well, going back to chapter two, um, chapter two can be divided up into, into four sections. Uh, verses 1 through 4 deals with submission. Uh, verses 5 through 11 deals with sacrifice. Verses 12 through 16 deals with sanctification. And verses 17 through 30 deals with service. The section that we are looking at and that we were looking at this morning is verses 12 through 16, which deal with sanctification. We talked about the foundation of our sanctification, uh, which is found there in verse 13, where it says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
That's, that's the foundation of our sanctification. That's the thing that makes our sanctification possible. It's the thing that makes our sanctification work. It's how we are able to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in this in our flesh. Then we come to verse 14, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is actually the form of sanctification, and and it's um, and it makes us aware of the fact that Paul still, in the midst of talking about sanctification, is concerned about relationships with people. So he says in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now that's a pretty big order. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. He says we're supposed to rejoice in all things. That's pretty pretty tough too. But those are things that God says we're supposed to be able to do. So Anybody have anything unpleasant in your life that you have to do? Everybody does. Even those people that seem to never have a problem, they are still dealing with unpleasant things. And, uh, and, and even in those cases, when there are things that are unpleasant, he says we ought to do them without murmurings, and disputings. And when we're talking about a church, a church family, um, you know, there are a lot, of, a lot of times we talk about how that in a family, even in a marriage, everything's not always perfect. Uh, there are disagreements. And husbands, you know, they're, and, and sometimes they're over minor things, just little things. And, uh, and you say, well, you know, you can get, you know, you handle something that is annoying for a little while, you know, but but if it's over and over and over again for 48 years, I mean, that's a long time to have to deal with, with something that's unpleasant. Not that I know anything about that. <laughs> My wife knows a lot about that, but I don't know much about that. But But even in those situations... What makes the relationship work is that you are able to see beyond those issues. You understand that everybody is human. What makes a church work is that the people who are members of the church are able to get beyond the fact that there are differences that make it sometimes a little bit of a challenge. But the challenge is not worthy of destroying a relationship or of, of, of destroying a church. And one of the things that I've been so thankful for over the years at Trinity is that in spite of the vast uh, disparity between people who have been parts of our church over the years, there's always been a good spirit. It's a, it's a very, very... Um, um, very friendly association. It's very comfortable. We know each other, and we are able to get along with each other in spite of the fact that we're not all perfect. And, uh, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, people, people will say sometimes, 
well, you better learn to get along with them down here because you're going to live with them for eternity up there. They're, if they're believers. Well, do you know what the answer to that is? Well, yeah, but when we get up there, we're, we're all going to be perfect. It's not going to be a battle like it is here. You know, but it doesn't matter that there are differences and it doesn't matter that there are challenges. What matters is that we are all brethren. And so we get beyond those issues so that we can work together. And we do what we do in the ministry without murmurings and disputings. It's never a good thing when you get together with other, other people and, and preachers who get together and spend their time talking about members in their church. You want to know what I say about folks at Trinity? I tell other preachers what a good group of folks we got. And I don't, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, in the, in the sense that I'm, I am enhancing things unrealistically. I'm saying it because we do. I'm very thankful for the people who are part of Trinity Baptist Church. And I have been over the years. And uh, I'm very grateful for what the Lord has done here. So, because, because we have a good spirit and things, things go well uh, as we deal with issues in our church. So, the form of sanctification is that we get to the place where we can, we can work together without having a bunch of conflict. And, uh, and that's, that allows a church to function like it is supposed to. So, verse 13, the foundation of church unit, of, of, uh, of sanctification, I'm sorry. Church 14, the form of sanctification. And then verse 15, the fruit of sanctification. And here's, here's the, the thing that, that progress in our sanctification produces in our life that makes things work the way they should. But look at verse 15. It says that we may be, or that ye may be, blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So now what fruit does sanctification produce in the life of a believer? That fruit is the testimony of truth. It is that there is a, a demonstration in your life, in your philosophy, in you, how you approach things, in your decision making, in, in, in how you function, there's a testimony of truth. The, the truth is what, what we value. The truth is what we base decisions on. The, the truth is what determines how we live and what we do. The truth is what is important in making sure that we are blameless and harmless and, and, and we don't have rebuke. Um, it's always interesting to me that when we get into certain places in Scripture, we, we focus on specific issues that are in part of the verses without taking the entire verse. We'll pick out certain parts that we'll say are important. And, uh, and then we'll leave the other stuff uh, behind. For example, it says here, you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. But it also says without rebuke. That means your testimony needs to be one of truth. Uh, 
talking this morning uh, with someone about the situation where it talks about in the book, book of Ephesians about fathers. And now fathers are supposed to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But then it goes on in the very next phrase and says, but provoke not your children to wrath. You know, most fathers who are dealing with their children about issues that need to be corrected, they will quote the first part of that verse. That it's our responsibility to make sure that we bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But then they skip that next part. And often they are guilty of the thing that the verse says they're not supposed to do, even though they're trying to do what the verse says you are supposed to do. It does say very clearly, provoke not your children to wrath. Now, how can you do that? Well, one of the biggest ways that I recall when I was growing up, and this is not a criticism of my parents, and I don't mean to make it sound like I'm ungrateful for for what they did. I had wonderful parents. I'm very thankful for them. But I heard many times when I would be, my dad would be correcting me, and, and I would say, well, why, Dad? Why? I don't, I don't understand that. And he would say something like, because I told you so. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of this house. That's not what he said. But, but that was the essence of what he was saying, what he, what he meant. I'm in charge of this house. You do what I say, and that's it. But, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I've, I've showed this illustration before, but there was a time, for example, uh, well, let me, let me just back up. All of, my, all of my years as a child, I never wore jeans. I never did. I didn't, I didn't wear dungarees. That's what my dad called them, dungarees. And there was a reason why I didn't wear dungarees. And it was because my dad, when he was growing up, he was an orphan, and he got passed around from one family to another. He also doesn't like chicken, because that's all he ate. When he was growing up, that's what he got was chicken all the time. So he never liked chicken, but, but he never, he, when he got to be an adult, and he was, he was a roofer, but I never saw him in a pair of jeans. He wore, he wore, uh, uh, khaki type pants and that kind of thing, work pants, and, uh, and when he was working on the roofs and that kind of thing, but he never wore jeans because those jeans to him were a symbol of his poverty. And he said, when, when I have children, they're not going to, if I have a son, he's not going to wear jeans. And it was a very, it was a significant thing to him. He made that choice, and, and he was determined that was going to be the case. But you know what? When I understood that, that took away me being offended over the fact that he said, you're not going to wear them. Because there was a reason for it. It's one thing to say, you're not going to do this, or, or I'm not going to let you do this. It's another thing to say when a child says, well, why? It's another thing to give them a reason that is based on truth. And, and every rule that you make in your house doesn't have to be based on some scriptural principle. It's okay to say, you know, the scripture doesn't, doesn't say anywhere you've got to be in by 10 o'clock at night, but you can make that rule and it's okay. Nothing wrong about that. You can make that rule and you can explain to them why. But the point is, we have a tendency to embrace and enforce the part of a passage or a verse 
that we like, that we feel like fits our, our philosophy or whatever, and then we sometimes leave out the other part of the verse. And so here the verse says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, and we'll talk about what those words mean in a moment, but then it goes on and says, without rebuke. That means above reproach. That's a, that's a pretty big bar to reach. None of us are, are completely without reproach because we do things from time to time we shouldn't do. But generally, that ought to be our desire. And in a crooked and perverse world, the only hope we have of making any kind of a difference is to gain the respect of the world because our testimony is based on truth. And we live embracing that truth. So there's the testimony of truth. We ought to love the truth. We ought to spend a great deal of time learning the truth. And you, you do that by spending time in the Word of God. And then we ought to make a great effort to live the truth. So, um, so that's, that's the fruit of sanctification as far as the world's concerned. Now what constitutes fruit? Well, fruit is the natural result of growth, and growth is the result of proper feeding and care. And fruit does not come from the conscious effort of the plant. There's no plant. You put a seed in the ground, and the seed doesn't all of a sudden sprout a brain. So you know what? I'm supposed to grow. I think I will. That's not how it works. It's an unconscious thing that happens with that seed. And the plant grows because it has been nurtured and cared for by someone else. If it's a wildflower or whatever, the Lord's the one that's caring for it. But it grows as a result of that nurture and care. It's not by a conscious effort of that plant. And you and I as believers, if we're going to to have the fruit of sanctification, it's going to be because we have been fed properly and cared for properly, and we have eaten properly and embraced the truth that we have received. Now, Paul mentions several things. First of all, he says that we may be blameless. The word blameless means deserving no censure, free from all fault, our defect. How many of us are blameless? Have we reached that goal yet? I'm getting close. I just, I just made a mistake when I said that because that will make me not blameless. It's like humility. The, the more we assume that we have gained access to it, the less evidence there's going to be in our life that it's there. If we ever get to the place where we feel like we have reached or attained the status of being blameless, then we're going to suffer as far as our testimony is concerned. But blameless means free from fault or defects. Harmless means to be unmixed, pure as in wines or metals. Pure in mind, without a mixture of evil, free from guile, innocent, simple. Um, one of the things that is so difficult about children is they grow older. 
is that they become defiled in their thinking. It's because of the world we live in. I wish that were not true. It would be wonderful if our children could remain simple when it comes to evil for a long, long time. Now, because of the world that we live in, there needs to be a consciousness of the danger. So I'm not suggesting that we hide them in a corner and close the door and keep them in a bubble so they never never see anything. But I'm saying that there's a, a joy about seeing a child who is innocent in the sense that they don't understand all the stuff. The problem we have now is there, there's five, six-year-old kids that understand all kinds of filthy words and all kinds of stuff because they are not innocent anymore. They've lost their innocence when it comes to evil way too early. And, uh, and, and so even us as adults, we're supposed to be to some degree innocent in the sense that we don't get so ingrained in us the evil of this world. Uh, That's the reason why the scripture says that it's a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. That shouldn't be a, a source of conversation for us. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on in the evil underbelly of our society. We as believers should be, to at least some degree, innocent of all that stuff. We don't need to be finding out about all that. We have this tendency to think that the only way we can stand against evil is if we know all about the enemy. But the truth is, our best approach is to know everything there is about that which is right. To embrace the truth, know about the truth, because learning the truth gives us a clear position on understanding. It doesn't take you long to understand that what somebody else says is evil or is wrong if you know the truth well. Um, there's that old illustration when they're dealing with people who are learning to uh, deal with counterfeiters. They don't, they don't get all the counterfeits they can find all of them, and say, all right, now this is, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and, and, and be looking for this on this and that. You know, they don't, they don't do that. They say, this is what's right. If it doesn't meet this standard, then it's wrong. Why can't we do the same thing in learning the truth, embracing the truth? And if what they're saying doesn't meet the standard of truth that's found in the Word of God, then we reject it. Innocent, free from guile, simple. And then the word rebuked means that it cannot be censored without spot. So three things I want you to see in this verse. First of all, we see the importance of a spiritual character. Again, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. This is the natural result of the fruit of the Spirit, fruit of of our sanctification, which comes from the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Paul mentions four aspects of fruit, and and we've already gone over them briefly, but let me me mention them again. Um, um, uh, There are actually three. 
Uh, first of all, we're to be innocent. That's without evidence of fault. That is blameless. We're to be impeccable, with this, which is without evidence of impurity, which is being harmless, and then immaculate, without spot or blemish, which is without rebuke. Vincent said the word without rebuke means unblemished in reputation and in reality. That's a tall order, but that ought to be our goal. And again, let me emphasize that the way to get there is not by determining that I'm going to be right in every situation. It's by embracing the truth that is found in the Word of God. And as we embrace that truth, we grow and, and it becomes more part of us. Um, we talked this morning about desires and deliberations and how they affect our decisions. Decisions, if we're doing things right and if we're embracing the truth that we're talking about here, decisions are not, are not made at the point when the challenge comes. It's already done. It's already, it's already done. You don't, you don't determine at the point when the temptation comes, all right, now let me see, I know I'm not supposed to do that. And no, then when the temptation comes, then you say, well, not that. I'm not doing that. There was a guy uh, many, many years ago who I had known. He was an old friend. And we were sitting in my car and driving down the road. And... Um, and there was something on the radio, it was a news program, conservative news broadcast, and, and we were talking and we were listening to that, and all of a sudden, this guy on the news broadcast spouted out a four-letter word on the radio. That sounds like ancient history now, doesn't it? Because it's all the time. But this guy who's sitting next to me in the car when that happened, immediately he said, well, that's enough for that guy. And he reached over and turned the radio off in my car. And I thought, well, who do you think you are? It's my car. You turn the radio off in my car. That's not what I thought. I thought, that guy has made a decision about what he's going to listen to and what he's not going to listen to. And the decision was already made. He didn't make it when he heard that. The decision was already made. And so his reaction was to do what he had determined was the right thing to do. We have too many Christians today who are making decisions on the spur of the moment when they face a challenge. There shouldn't be any deliberation at that time. You've already made up your mind about what's right or wrong about those things, and you, and you, you just do what you should do. Um, all of these character traits we're talking about, the, the blameless, harmless, without rebuke, are natural for a child of God. They are normal characteristics of godliness. And, um, and the character that we gain from embracing this truth and making it a part of who we are, that character is meant to withstand the onslaught from our world system which is getting worse and worse and worse day by day. 
a spiritual character. That's what we're supposed to have. Why do we need it? Because we live in a sinful community. Notice what it says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the challenge was to demonstrate these character traits in a perfect world? That would be easy to do, wouldn't it? Because in a perfect world, we wouldn't be challenged about any of that. There would be no temptations. It's going to be wonderful when we get to heaven and the sin is gone. And, and, and there's not going to be any temptation. We're not, not going to have to deal with that stuff. But right now, we do deal with it. And our testimony in this world depends on what our character is like in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. We are to demonstrate by our testimony a spirit of godliness in spite of our surroundings. Um, Preachers, to some degree, live in a bubble. You understand that, I guess. In other words, our, our, our employment responsibility is not the same as somebody who works in a factory or somebody who works in a public setting who deals with the iniquity that is so, so prevalent in our society today. Now, before I went in the ministry, I worked in in secular jobs and um, some situations that were uh, very challenging. Uh, I, when I was in college, I worked in a grocery store and I stocked shelves. I had made a commitment that I would not, you know, the, the, the Bible says, woe unto him that giveth drink, put a drink to his neighbor's lips. And it goes on and says, make it him drunken also. I would not have been guilty of encouraging him to get drunk, but I would have been making the alcohol available to him. So I made up my mind that if I, I was going to work at a grocery store, I'd be glad to work there, but I'm not going to handle the, the beer and wine and that kind of stuff. And that's an outdated position that a lot of people don't agree with that, but that's what I, what I did. That was my 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 choice and so uh so they gave me a job that i could i could work on the paper goods out and uh i did that and, and canned goods and that's i stopped the shelves and i did that after i got done with my schooling in the daytime and uh, but i had a supervisor that had about as filthy a mouth as any man i've ever i've ever known I mean, he he used language that uh, was just uh, what he used words I never knew existed. I mean, it was it was it was bad. And I had asked him to please not be so um, um, profane. He took God's name in vain over and over again. And I uh, worked there one year. And, uh, and then I went home for the summer, and I told the, the manager of the store would not be back. And he said, well, why is that? We really would we'd like for you to come back. And I said, well, because I am having to deal with 
this guy who is so um, so bold and so blatant in his profanity. It's just it's just very difficult for me because I'm a Christian. I'm, I don't I don't appreciate that. I'd rather not. I'd rather not have to deal with that. And he said, "Well, we really would like you to come back. I'll talk to that guy. We'll get that fixed." I, well, no, that's that's okay. But but my point is, I've dealt with some of that stuff as well. I've had some other things that I won't tell you about that were challenges. But uh, but it always helps if you've already got your mind made up about where you stand on things, and. Uh, and, and you refuse to be uh, drawn in. Um, Paul talks specifically about the character of this world. Uh, notice he says, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked. Crooked means the opposite of straight. That was profound, wasn't it? You didn't know that, did you? Crooked means the opposite of straight. Uh, means that we live in a world that is dishonest in their actions, a world that is deceived in their beliefs, a world that is deranged in their thinking, and a world that is depraved in their character. Now that's a pretty good description of the world we live in right now. And I'm and I'm not I'm not talking about specific people, I'm talking about the general character of the world in which we live. And it is getting worse by the day. They are deranged in their thinking. They believe maybe that what they are saying, they, they, they believe it's true. But, uh, but they are absolutely dishonest and their character is depraved. They're crooked, the opposite of straight. Not only are they crooked, but it says that they are perverse, which means that they are corrupt. They're deformed in character and conduct. So in other words, these people are, and, and this is not an exaggeration, the people in this, that, are, that are in charge of this world system and uh, uh, those who are, are, are giving them leadership and guidance are enemies of truth and righteousness. They're not interested in embracing the truth. They are defenders of wickedness and perversion. And I could go through and give you example after example. I mean, it's all over the place. There's no benefit to doing that. You know that. The example, scriptural example of what's going on in our society today is the, uh, the society that Lot found himself in. You remember when the, the angels came to the door? Uh, uh, well, yeah, they, and, and Lot took them in and and, and the, the men came from the city and knocked on the door and said, send those men out. We, we want to get to know them better. And Lot said, no, you can't do that. That's not right. At least he had a, a, a good opinion there. He was on the right side there. But then to placate them, he said, I've got a daughter who has not known man. Let me send her out. You can do with her what you want. But don't, don't. these guys are my guests in my home. That was the society that Lot was in. That's Pretty, pretty comparable to what's going on in the society that we live in today. The testimony of a believer is supposed to stand in stark contrast to the darkness and evil of this present world. 
we're supposed to be different. And people are supposed to know we're different. Not because we decide that we're going to choose to condemn them all the time. But you know what? If you're standing for truth, and you are embracing truth, and you're living according to the truth as you're supposed to, you won't have to say anything. Your life will condemn them. They will be uncomfortable because of who you are and what they see in your life. I'm very thankful for the guy that built our house when we moved here. But it was difficult because he had a profane mouth too. And he knew that I was a preacher and he would, we would get over there and we'd be talking about the house and he'd be working on it and, and he would say something and all of a sudden, I never one time said anything to him about the way he talked, but he would say something he shouldn't say and he said, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And, uh, and it wasn't because I condemned him for what he was saying. He just knew because of my testimony that that was not good. That's, that, that's the way it's supposed to be. Our testimony should be on display. And Paul talks specifically about how. Notice the last thing he says in this verse. He says that we're, we're, we're to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Our goal as believers, one of the, one of the consequences, one of the results of our sanctification is that the world is going to be able to see the truth in us. And it's not going to be a situation where it's going to be hard to see. You know, Jesus said we're to let our light shine. We're not supposed to hide it under a bushel. There are people today who say, well, I don't want to be offensive even though I'm a Christian and I want to take a stand and I want people to know where I believe, what I stand, what I believe. But, but I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be offensive to them, so I'm going to tone it down a little bit. You're hiding your light. We don't need to tone it down. And I don't mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about getting in somebody's face. All I'm saying is just be who we are supposed to be as believers. That by itself will be enough to make them see that there's something different. And our lives, the light that shines as a result of us embracing the truth will be enough to condemn them. I won't have to, you, you won't have to say a word. It's, it's, it's part of who we are supposed to be as believers. So, not only is there this matter of, of us having a spiritual character in the midst of a sinful community, but we're supposed to be a shining candle in the midst of that crooked and perverse nation. Among, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. The word that is translated shine and the word that is translated light come from the same root word. And we get our English word phosphorus from that, that word. It, it literally means, the, the, the word that is translated shine and light, same word, it literally means light bearer. We're supposed to be light bearers in this world. And it got its name because of the fact that white phosphorus in its purest form 
glows in the dark. And that's what we're supposed to do, is we're supposed to glow in the dark. And it doesn't matter how dark things get in this world, we should still be glowing. People ought to be able to see us. We are the light of the world, Jesus said. He is the light of the world, but he also said we are the light of the world. You know, the, the, the sun is the light in our solar system. The moon is the light for the night. That's what we say. But the, but the moon doesn't have any light of its own. The moon reflects the light of the sun. That's how we see it. And some people say, well, we're supposed to reflect the light of Christ. No, that's not true. We are supposed to be the light because the Spirit of God lives within us. That's what Jesus said. We have the light of Christ in the Son of God, in the, in the, in the Spirit of God, living within us. And it's supposed to glow. We're supposed to glow in the dark. So the question is, can others see the fruit of sanctification in your life? What is that fruit? It's the truth that's found in the Word of God. It's the fact that we embrace that truth. That truth transforms us to make us like the Son of God, and then we glow in the midst of a dark and a perverse, a crooked and a perverse nation. The more, the more defiled the corruption, more more corruption in the in the world in which we live, the greater the opportunity for the light to shine. We um, we have a tendency to think that in America, because we have not dealt with a great deal of persecution, that we have earned the right to be free from persecution. The truth is, our our testimony as believers will get better as we face the challenges. The most committed Christians anywhere in the world are those that live in communities and in countries where they do not have freedom to practice their faith as they choose. But they're willing to pay the price because it's precious to them. The freedom that makes it easy to be a believer means that we have millions of people in America who claim faith in Christ who don't know what it is to know Him. That's our society today. And they go and they practice what they call religious ceremonies or whatever. But there's no reality to it. And when the time for persecution comes, there'll be those who don't, don't maintain their stand. Their light will go out, whatever, whatever it is. But for those of us who know the Lord, we need to make sure that we have, we, that, our, that our testimony is solidified by the truth that we have embraced and it's a part of who we are. It's ingrained in who we are. It's not something we have just taken on and we, and we set it up and, and hold aside. It's part of who we are. And people just being around us ought to be able to tell it. Because it is just, just who we are.
God help us to have the character that we need to be the lights that we need to be in the middle of a crooked and a perverse nation because that's where we are and it's not going to get any better. Let's stand together as Bama's